disruptive glory. And we, if, you, if you want to know what dif- disruptive glory is, go listen to the uh, teaching from the 21st of November, uh, where we talked about disruptive glory and what it means to have permission from God and what disruptive glory looks like, because it's an ancient practice of God to disrupt things with his glory. And when he disrupts things with his glory, he devastates the landscape in terms of destroying all that is evil. And he devastates the landscape so that his goodness, his power, his laughter, his love uh, can burst through it. And he's been doing it right from the Garden of Eden. And so uh, we said that um, there is a revival that God is causing through this church across the earth. And uh, we've talked about how ridiculous it is to think that a revival could start amongst these people here and that we would have seed that we would take and plant across the earth. And it's only a matter of months or years before, before nations will be uh, saturated with seed that will spread and that we are at present the igniters of a revival across the earth. That is such a presumptuous claim, and yet that is true. And we went over why it is true. So I'm not going to cover that ground. I'm just laying that down because some of us haven't heard that before. And we said that God is riding this revival that he's igniting through us, that he's riding or striding this revival as a purifier, and that out of this revival will rise a generation of teens, of 20s, of 30s, who will be God-seers and ancient door openers, that they'll be God-seers because God is striding this revival as a purifier. And whatever God appears in a revival as is what the revival will produce fruit uh, in. So if he's going to be a purifier in this revival, then he'll raise a generation that will be pure in heart. And we said that amongst the teens, the 20s and 30s, this is what's going to happen. You want to give me some? No? Oh, don't eat it. But there's a three-second rule. Thanks. Oh, your dad does not believe in the three-second rule. You can eat it. <laughs> oh, no. Do you mind removing your family from being such a distraction? Okay. Yeah, so God's going to raise up teens, 20s, and 30s, who will be God-seers, because it's only the pure that see God and know where he's going, and ancient door openers. That's a generation that's coming up. Eh? And we said that it would arrest historical desolation, and it would cause generational restoration. These are terms already explained, so I don't want to go into that. And it will arrest historical desolation. Heritages that have been desolate in nations for years will be arrested and it will also cause it will also cause generational restoration as in there'll be a, there'll be multiple generations that arise for the next 40 50 60 70 years that will restore things that's what we've already spoken about so i just wanted to go over those two lines and then go on to what we need to talk about guys disruptive glory is what brings about a distinction between the one true god and all others Disruptive glory. And we have to call it disruptive glory. Jacob, why not just call it glory? Because it doesn't explain what God is going to do. There's, there's a sense of disruption about what he's going to do. 
and he's going to disrupt things with his absolute splendor, magnificence, weight, uh, strength, laughter, power, goodness. That is how he's going to do it. So, disruptive glory draws a distinction, draws a distinction between the one true God, between the one true God and others. Between the one true God and others. He's always done it this way. Beat on Carmel, when he had to tell Israel, who do you want to serve? Be it in um, Carmel, be it in Egypt, when they had to choose between all the gods of Egypt and the God of Israel. Be it in Sinai, when Israel had God form a nation. Be it on the Mount of Transfiguration. One of the things we need to realize is that disruptive glory is the greatest tool of evangelism, is the greatest tool of evangelism, and it is also the most dangerous weapon against the enemy. Against the enemy. So take scriptures and you'll see it. Um, What happened in Cana when he turned water into wine? They beheld his glory and it changed them. What happened on the Mount of Transfiguration when he took on what he really looked like? Peter talks about it years later in 2 Peter 1. What happens when he rolls the stone away and Lazarus is called out? People began to believe him. What happens when Dagon falls in the temple of Dagon when the ark moves in? The glory of God moved in and idol fell. The Bible is littered with stories of God's glory either drawing people to them, to himself, or God's glory destroying the enemy. And when this disruptive glory begins to display itself through me, then two things will happen. One, it becomes the greatest tool of evangelism. Two, it becomes the most dangerous weapon that I can use to destroy the enemy. Guys, there are places I go to absolutely aware that the dread of God is upon the powers as I walk into a place. Hear me again, eh? And this is not a Jacob boast. It is just a knowing. There are some places, I mean, you sometimes, I've seen uh, really good vets, like dog doctors, who can go into a room full of really nasty dogs. There's this guy called Hansel that I know in Bahrain. He has his ability to go into um, a place where there are really nasty dogs, and when he goes, the dogs just settle down. It's almost like Crocodile Dundee. Many of you don't know who that is. Uh, that's okay. But it's almost like that guy. He, they lit, there are places that I've gone to where I have seen powers know the dread of Yahweh because I've stepped into a place. And there's, it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the weight of God that sometimes displays itself through me. What if it displays itself on a regular basis? I've said this to you before, at least I've said to some of you before. I remember going to Indonesia and there were witch doctors who would come up on stage and when they would come up on stage to try and do harm, before they could climb up, they would fall and it had nothing to do with me. 
It's recorded on, I mean, television crews were recording it. So um, there's documented evidence for this. It's not some, something I imagined. There were thousands of people watching it as they would come up, faces painted with white, and they would hardly make their ways up the step and they would fall. So Jacob, are we to expect dramatic stuff like this? When has this God not been dramatic? We've got to stop believing this lie that this God is routine. There's very little that is routine about this God. When my life is routine, I shouldn't make my God routine. We're doing what Michelangelo did. Make God look like a little older than Adam. I mean in the chapel. God's glory is the greatest tool of evangelism. It is also the most dangerous weapon you can use because God's glory is his spirit. Shekinah. Any questions on that? I hate it when God's glory stays within the Bible. Hate it. Then we are just like any other people with a holy book, man. The reason sometimes that we don't experience this is because we try to accommodate his glory. We try to accommodate his glory. As a church, as people, hey, at the end of the day, even when we say church, remember we, a church is made up of individuals, and so you have to, because you're part of this church, refuse to accommodate God's glory. As in we can't create, how do we accommodate God's glory? We give him some time to do what he wants. We create some time on, on a Sunday. During the service, we create some time. That's not the way he works. He does not look for services. He looks for a people. The service is just an event that happens through the people because he turns up. He's so not interested in a service. He's so not interested in a service. All he's looking for is a people. And he's looking for a people 24-7. And the problem is, he knows my heart and my mind and what I'm actually thinking and feeling. With masks on, it's even harder to decipher what you're thinking. But he can. And so, here's something he wants us to know. I will not be accommodated by you. I wish I could write it in caps so it sounds like God. I will not be accommodated. Take it as a rhema word to us. And to each of us individually, to me as a pastor, to us corporately, he's saying this. Listen, I've poured in too much into your life. I will not be accommodated by you. I will not be accommodated by you. Isaiah 29 verse 13 talks about it. Guys, no, not yet. Isaiah 29, 13. He's, you know, I don't know why we think God can be accommodated, that we can create some time for him and he'll be happy. He's the most important person in the universe. Everything exists before, because of him. You don't know what it feels like when he gets accommodated, when we play nice with him. How do you feel when you're accommodated? When you're being patronized, when you think they are 
putting up with you because it's an obligation. They got two hours, they got to put up with you. After that, they're glad you're gone. Every time dawn comes, I feel like that. <laughs> Isaiah 29, 13. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. Their worship is off me. The worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. It may not be talking about us, but I want you to know how every day God gets accommodated and it ain't good enough. And he's saying to us, I will not be accommodated by you. And that is a very direct word to us as Acts 29. I will not be accommodated by you, but you can be foolish. But you can be foolish and surrender to me. And surrender to my glory. Because my glory needs vessels to be poured into and poured out of. I will not be accommodated by you. As is going over this word again and again, because I felt this was a direct uh, speak to us. Listen, guys, I will not be accommodated by you. And so if I'm not going to be, I am unwilling to be accommodated by you. If you try to accommodate me, I will not turn up. Do not think that God turns up every time in every church. Eh? That's a falsehood. That just because we sing a few songs and are gathered together in agreement that God turns up, God turns up where he knows that he's not being accommodated. We've created a theology of, oh, God is here. God is very often not there. Jacob, how can you say that? Check the Old Testament, man. Why do you bring me these sacrifices? Why do you bring me these things during full moon and feasts? I'm not interested in it. If he used to say that in the Old Testament when he was outside and he could tolerate some misunderstanding, how much more in the New Testament when he lives inside me and inside us? He, does, he is not always present. As in he is present because he's omnipresent, but it's not like he's actually saying, ah, finally found a place. And to us, he's making it even stricter. Guys, I poured far too much into you, taught you far too much. I will not be accommodated by you. You try to accommodate me, I will not be there. And then Jane will have to do her best to drum up enthusiasm. Sax will have to play like crazy. I will not be accommodated by you. But you can be foolish and you can surrender to my glory. There is just no way to surrender to disruptive glory except to be foolish. I hope we sing undignified at the end. Except to be foolish. Foolishness is the only way into the core of God's heart. Foolishness is the only way you enter into the core of God's heart. Only way. And here's another thing I want you to know. You cannot... Dive into God's glory sitting alone at home. The bridegroom reveals himself to the bride. The bride, you are not the bride. You are part of the bride. You sit at home. Uh, um, Jacob, you're coming on too strong. Absolutely. You sit at home and think you can sit at home and not be part of the body and enjoy what God is going to do and be part of what God is going to do ain't going to happen regardless of how gifted you are, how skilled you are. 
And the reason I need to say this now is because it's going to get worse. I mean, there's more. I'm not talking about sitting at home if you have a reason to sit at home. I'm talking about sitting at home because you can afford it. Affording it is accommodating God. Don't do it, guys. Any questions you want to push back? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, we have this false notion. Yeah, the question is, I don't understand how God can be always present and yet not be present. Uh, uh, so we've created this idea that um, God is present here and therefore uh, we can access him. And that part is actually true because he's omnipresent. Whenever people gather or whenever people don't gather, he's present. He's present with you at home. He's present here together. But if you want God to, in his presence, now begin to open his heart, open his mind, open his splendor, his glory and wait and say, hey, want to share? That requires more than just his presence. It would be like um, Corrie ten Boom coming to your house and uh, you're very excited and you say, oh, Corrie ten Boom is here, Corrie ten Boom is here, but she doesn't say anything about her life. It would be like Bill Gates coming to your house. It would be like um, Warren Buffett coming to your house and all you do with Warren Buffett is go and eat at a buffet. Doesn't help much. I mean, he'll think you're making fun of him. When Warren Buffett comes home, don't take him out to a buffet. Dig his mind. And the only way you dig his mind is when you actually honor him, respect him, run after him. God is present, but his presence does not mean that he lets himself know. Perfect example. Jesus was present on earth. What happened, man? He was present on earth. And people missed out. Why? Nicodemus tried to accommodate him in the chosen. It's very odd. Now you have to say Nicodemus tried to accommodate him in the chosen as opposed to the Bible. Ah, I love the fact that he's saying to us, I refuse to be accommodated by you. You guys try to accommodate me, I will not show up. Brilliant. Amen, oh God. Don't show up. I like this God, man. He's so challenging. He's, he just refuses to be easy. So, you can be foolish and surrender to my glory. It's the only way we can handle him, eh? God can only be handled when you're foolish. God can only be handled if you're foolish. Because my glory needs vessels. And my glory needs vessels to be poured into and poured out of. So, hey Jacob, you want to 
engage with my glory, be foolish. Once you're foolish, present yourself. Present yourself so that I can actually begin to display my glory through you. I live in you, yes. But now I want to display myself through you. The only way I can display myself through you is if you're foolish. And once you're foolish, I'll begin to display myself and pour myself out through you. That's how this works. So what does it take to become that kind of a vessel? What does it take to become that kind of a vessel? The first thing we need to realize if you want to become that kind of a vessel is that you are not your own. If you want a title for this teaching, it is Disruptive Glory, Not Your Own. Hey, you've got to answer this question again and again and again throughout this week in the, and in the coming weeks. Coming weeks, Whose are you? Whose are you? I don't know if that's correct English, but we'll go with that. Whose are you? And please don't say God, because that's a very easy answer. First, we have to deal with the answer. Whose are you? The response is not mine, my own. Whose are you? You are not yours. You are not yours. You are not yours. Whose are you? You are not yours. You do not belong to yourself. You've been bought at a price. You've been bought at a price from the destroyer. You've been bought at a price, at a blood price from the destroyer. You do not belong to yourself. You are not your own. You are not your own. It is so hard to get used to that in a world that says, mine, 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 mine. It is very hard to get used to. It's, it's, it's so easy to go from, um, who are, who, whose are you? I am God's. That's easy. But there, there's a place I need to park before I go and say, I am God's. And that place is, I am not my own. Whose are you? I am not my own. I am not my own. I've been repeating this to myself. Jacob, you are not your own. You do not own yourself. You do not belong to yourself. You do not have a right to self-determination. You do not have a right to yourself. These are horrible things to say because the world screams exactly opposite. That you have the right of self-determination. The moment you got born again, the moment you got saved, you lost your right of self-determination. It belongs to someone else who paid a price for it. You are not your own. After you answer that question and get used to the fact that you are not your own, you ask it again. Whose are you? Now you can say Christ. But do not transition from whose are you to straight to God because it doesn't work. You have to disown before you can be owned. Unfortunately, it doesn't end there. Whose are you? You are not your own. You are Christ and you are ours. That suddenly brought a stunned silence. People were nodding till I said Christ. And suddenly when I changed it to, you're not your own. You are Christ and you are ours. You belong to us. What do I mean by us? The body of Christ. You belong to us. You see how self-determination suddenly evaporates when you belong to visible people. You are not your own. You are Christ's and you are ours. I am not my own. I am Christ's and the moment I am Christ, I am yours. 
Do you see why disruptive glory finds it very hard to make an inroad into lives and make an inroad outroad out of make a make make a road out of lives? Because if we don't cross this threshold, it's very hard to go any further. You're talking about the glory that created the universe. It can only be accommodated when it has no self-interest. And we're not there, but my God, we can start getting there. You are not your own. Whose are you? You are not your own. Whose are you? You are Christ's. Whose are you? You are Christ's and you are ours. My God, when people begin to exert ownership over me, now it gets troublesome. It was okay as long as it was Christ. Manoj is ours. Manoj is ours. He belongs to Christ and he belongs to us. We can't demand that of him, but he can offer that to us. The moment we demand that of him, we're now stepping into this cultish, legalistic, religious place. But he can offer. Whose are you? You're not your own. You are Christ's. And you are ours. We won't demand it of you, but we'll wait to see if you will offer it. And then finally, you are the Spirit's dwelling place. Where do we find this? In 1 Corinthians 6, 19. What's the context in 1 Corinthians 6.19? Hey, if you belong to me, the Holy Spirit is saying, then why are you taking your body and using it the way you want to? Why are you joining it to things that are sexually immoral? immoral? That's the context. But the message is clear. And it's this slave temple motive, where on one hand, he's saying, hey, you need to recognize yourself as a slave. Hey, you need to recognize yourself as a temple. You do not belong to yourself, Nick. You belong to... You do not belong to yourself. That's the first realization Nick needs to have. Second realization, I belong to Christ. Third realization, I belong to a people. I must struggle with this because everything in me screams at this because right from when we are... I mean, this is exactly what Satan wanted Adam not to be and he succeeded. You belong to us, Sede, or decide that you don't belong to us. You belong to us, Miguel, or decide you don't belong to us. It cannot be enforced, it cannot be demanded of you. That's the, uh, th that part is critically. Because the moment we begin to demand it, we now become controlling. And we take away a person's free will. It's this fine line that we have to walk. Where we speak this truth train in this truth, but can't force it. Any questions? Manoj, since you belong to us, can you get me a glass of water? Sorry, say that again. Uh, can you, can you 
I will. Yeah. The best example of us belonging to others is when Christ said he belongs to us as a servant, that he has come to serve us. He said, follow my example. You call me rabbi, you call me teacher, and rightly so. But you need to know that I have come to serve you. And now that I have come to serve, Luke 22, 27 to 30, um, now that I've come to serve you, you need to understand that I expect the same of you. He belonged to a realm that was entirely different. And then he chooses this other way of living. We've got many reasons to do this. One is simply because Christ does it. Two, because this is the way we can now begin to let his Shekinah burst through. Thanks, man. So let's explain, examine this idea of being a slave, eh? I don't want to use the word servant because it makes it rosier. Let's use the word slave. Here's the ultimate ob- objective of servanthood, or, s- or being a slave. Or the ultimate objective of s- servanthood in the kingdom is to become, uh, is to become someone who can display his glory. The ultimate objective of servanthood is to provide a body for his glory. The ultimate objective of servanthood is to provide a body for his glory. The ultimate objective of servanthood is to provide a body for his glory. Where do you hear this? Luke one thirty eight. Who says it? Mary. That's where you hear it first. The ultimate objective of servanthood is can I provide you, O God, a body for your glory? Do with it as you will. Do with it as you will. That's what Mary does in Luke one thirty eight. Hebrews 10.5, Jesus sets the example. Sacrifices and offerings you haven't asked for. But here I come with my body. Send me, O oh God. Let me become the sacrifice. Such a hard thing to ask, eh? Such a cool thing to give. Luke 22.27-30. Luke 22.27-30, reading from the message. Luke 22, 27 to 30. Who would would you rather be? The one who eats the dinner or the one who serves the dinner? You'd rather eat and be served, right? But I've taken my place among you as one who serves. Kings like to throw their weight around. People in authority like to give themselves fancy titles. It's not going to be that way with you. Let the senior among you become like the junior. Let the leader act the part of the servant. You stuck with me through thick and thin, and now I confer on you the royal authority my father conferred on me. So you can eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and be strengthened as you take up responsibilities among the congregations of God's people. So what does a slave or a servant look like? A servant is permanently subject to his master. So there's a permanency to this. This is not some kind of um, um, twice a week thingy. Second, he's totally dependent on his master. He's totally dependent on his master. 
evaluate your, your life and my life based on this, eh? Third, he works without expectation of pay. Works without expectation of pay. Four, he stewards everything on behalf of his master. As in he gives account. On behalf of his master. And five, he strives to serve the guests of his master. And six, he does not have a choice in these matters. He does not have a choice. This is what a slave looks like, guys. He permanently, he's permanently subject to his master. Like, there are no days off. What we do at work is something we do on the side. He's permanently subject to his master. Two, he's totally dependent on his master. If his master is a cruel master, you're sunk. He's totally dependent on his master. Third, he, he works without an expectation of pay. Doesn't matter what you do, you don't peddle your goods. You don't ask for a um, price for what you're doing. You do it willingly. This is not volunteerism. It's slavery. Yeah. Um, we got to hold three things in tension. Son, servant, friend. All three exist together because Jesus was the same. Jesus was a son. Jesus was a servant. Jesus was a friend. And so it, it never contradicts each other. So on one hand, the same Jesus who said, I no longer call you slave, but I call you friend, is the same Jesus who's saying, I want you to be servants as I was a servant. And it's the same Jesus who's saying, I'm giving you the right to be called children of God. So son, servant, friend have to exist in tension. And they can exist together at the same time. So I can be a son to the father, I can be a servant to you, and I can be a friend to Emily at the same time. Uh, slave, uh, servant is a nicer term. Slave really drives home the point. So uh, we can go with servant because we relate better to servant. And the idea of slavery is just so um, horrible that we don't want to think like that. But a bond servant was basically a slave because this last line, a slave does not have a choice in these matters. We have choice. I mean, he gives us a free will. He strives to serve the guests of the master. Even if I don't like you, if God wants me to serve you, I don't have a choice. And then he stewards things on behalf of his master. Live like this and glory is unstoppable through a people like this. Unstoppable. We cannot become this in a day. But we can become something better in two days. Yeah. 
So I look at my benevolent father and I know all my needs are provided. As a son, I lack nothing. As a servant, I own nothing. As a son, I lack nothing. I know my father takes great care of me. As a servant, I own nothing. Because I have a benevolent master. He'll take good care of me. I don't have to worry about that. As a son, I lack nothing. Sons, it's odd. If a son has a super good father, he will never look for rewards. Why do, why do we reward? Because it's almost like, if you do this, I will give you this. You can have dads that are so brilliant that the child just knows that he'll always get more than he deserves anyway. So every day is a reward of sorts. It'll take away our thing as, I did this for you, I did this for you, I did this for you, but look what you have done for me. What have you done for me lately, oh God? That goes away because you see him as a father who is always good, but you see him as a master who is benevolent too. So as a son, you lack nothing. As a servant, you own nothing. And when you reach that happy place, you're the happiest man in the world. I must see myself as your servant. I must not see you as my servant. I must see myself as your servant. I must not see you as my servant. I must see myself as your servant, but I must not see you as my servant. That's your call. I'm responsible for my attitude towards you. I cannot demand your attitude towards me. So what prevents us from living like this? Just go over that and then we'll stop. Three things prevent me. I've been going over this and hating the fact that so much, so much work is still left to be done <laughs> by the Spirit of God in my life. Three things that prevent me from living like this is one, independence, two, self-preservation, three, orphanhood. Independence, self-preservation, orphanhood. These are the three things that prevent me from living like this. And we need to see these three things as the greatest enemies, greatest enemy of God and his move on earth. If you don't see it as an enemy, you won't hate it. Hatred is a fine quality when it comes to stuff like this. If you don't hate it, you will, not, you will not get rid of it. You should hate it. Three things that are an enemy of God and an enemy of every move of God that must be banished from our lives, from this church, is independence, 
self-preservation, and orphanhood. And I struggle with all three, particularly with self-preservation and in some areas with orphanhood, still, and a little less with independence. Uh, now that you've asked, we'll have to take another 20 minutes at it. It's her fault. I was going to cut things short. Guys, so let's answer her question. These things lead to the idolatry of self. The idolatry of self, let me just explain. These words are so Christian, they don't mean anything. The idolatry of self is when I say, hey, Jesus, can you step aside? I'm at the center. You stand there. Is it gross enough? I want us to know what we're doing. When I'm independent, or when I'm self-preserving, here's what I'm saying. Jesus, I'd like you to step off the throne and stand on the side, because I'm at the center. This is why I must hate it. It leads to idolatry of self. It leads to secrecy. If I'm independent, if I'm self-preserving, if I have an orphan spirit, then know this for certain, that my life will be secretive. It leads to spiritual dystrophy. It leads to spiritual dystrophy. As in, my spiritual muscles begin to uh, degenerate. It leads to an absence of correction. And it leads to people being went once, not sent once. What I mean by that is, if I'm independent, then I choose to, I decide where I go. You don't decide where I go. Christ doesn't decide where I go. The body doesn't decide where I go. I decide where I go. So I'm no longer one that is sent. I'm a one that is went. In certain contexts, it's okay. But in a context like this, it's not okay. Because we built far too long to now be went once. There's room here for everybody to grow. I'm not saying that because I'm a pastor of the church. I'm saying that because it's the truth. Try it. Test it. See. Challenge it. Prove it wrong. Independence robs me. Independence robs me. Okay, first, independence separates me from servanthood. Independence separates me from servanthood. Separates me from servanthood. Independence separates me from servanthood. It is impossible. Hear me. Uh, You know, when I was writing this, I could think of any number of people all across the world, world who would fit into whatever I wanted to. And as I was doing that, I remember God saying, can you please look at yourself before you look at others? <laughs> and one of the things that independence does is independence absolutely separates you from servanthood. It is not possible to be a servant if you are independent. Not possible. 
The one thing that you have to abandon if you're a servant is independence. This is not easy, guys. It's very difficult. You guys should have come a couple of weeks ago, man. It was a nicer message. Then <laughs> just check with me before you bring them again. <laughs> it was much funnier, is really nice atmosphere, but too bad. Your dad chose the wrong day. It separates me from servanthood. And then it robs Christ. These are the things that are so sad about this. It robs Christ. Bye, Lorian. It robs. Bye, Marcus. <laughs> it robs Christ and the body of opportunities. It robs Christ and, and the body of opportunities. For God. It robs Christ and the body of opportunities to display. God's glory and purpose. And three, it robs you of the Matthew 25, 21 reward. What is the Matthew 25, 21 reward? Well done, good and faithful servants. You've been faithful over 10 cities. Uh, let me, uh, you've been faithful over five cities. Let me give you 10. These are the things that you miss out on because of independence. It separates me from servanthood. I cannot be a servant if I'm independent. Second, it robs Christ because he uses servants. You know, it's so odd. Eh? Jesus had to first go from son to servant before he could be used the way God wanted him to. It robs Christ of opportunities. It robs the body of opportunities to display God's purpose and God's glory through you if you're independent. And thirdly, it robs you of Matthew 25, 21 rewards. And what are Matthew 25, 21 rewards? That you will hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. It isn't said to anybody and everybody. It is said to ones who have been good and faithful. It robs you of those rewards. It robs you of rewards over cities that God wants to appoint you. If that is independence, what is orphanhood? To answer, what's the name's question? Karen's question. Can someone see the pen? Don't worry, I can do this without a pen. If you stole the pen to make me stop, it ain't gonna happen. Okay, so let's go on. An orphan, right underneath, Ah, you're welcome back anytime. <laughs> you can bring Josh along. <laughs> Guys, um, here's what an orphan looks like. Has not fully realized and abandoned himself to the nature of, abandoned himself or herself to the nature of the father. An orphan is someone, and this happens to me so many times where suddenly I begin to behave like an orphan. 
I, I don't fully realize or fully abandon myself to the nature of the father. I'm suspicious. An orphan is also someone who having opportunity, who having opportunity, does not engage fully, does not engage fully relationally in the family of God, relationally in the family of God. You are here and yet you will not, despite the opportunities you get, relationally engage with the family of God. You're just not able to. You're suspicious of people. You're suspicious of what their, um, their intents are. You're never confident that you are accepted. It's an orphan spirit. Or you keep yourself at a healthy distance. Turn up on Sundays. And if, 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 if this cap fits your head, wear it. Turn up on Sundays. Disappear after Sundays. Not connected with the body. Hey, find a church where you're connected then and connect there. But don't live the life of an orphan. An orphan is someone who does not connect with the father because he cannot him abandon himself to the father, fully realize him. And there are so many times I think to myself after all these years, why is it, Jacob, that you still behave like an orphan? And then the second part is relationally not engaging. For different reasons. Guys, I really want you to know this is not a blame teaching. It is exposing where we are at teaching. How can a guy who knows the father so well, and you know I know the father well, have such an orphan mentality still? Why is it that I sometimes behave like an orphan still? Ah, this next point, Chad and I were talking about it. Really, it sucks. An orphan, of, an orphan is one who is stuck at adoption and isn't convinced of sonship. We all have been adopted into the family of God. Unfortunately, many of us are stuck at adoption. It's like, I know I'm adopted, but I'm, am I really family? Chris Valentin talks about how he had an adopted child in his family, and every time they would sit for a meal, this child would begin to grab everything on the table because the child was never sure that he would be given his fair share. There is the thing about being adopted by God and then moving from adoption to full sonship. So often, we are stuck in, yeah, I, I know I'm a part of the family of God, but I'm adopted. There is this movement that needs to happen from adoption to full sonship. The father has no problem seeing me as a son. He sees me exactly the way he sees his son. Which is mind-boggling. I cannot imagine it. I have an idea of how the father sees Jesus. I do not have the ability to comprehend that he treats me exactly the same. Exactly the same. Not a bit of a difference. The exact way he treats Jesus is the exact way he treats Jacob. I find it very hard to wrap my blooming gray cells around that. He has no problem seeing me as a son, but I'm not convinced of it yet. 
hate it, guys, hate it. What time is it? Okay, one ten or one? Okay, one o seven. I got three minutes. <laughs> I'll just read what self-preservation looks like, so we have all three, and then you can go home and work hard on this, guys. It's changing our minds. It's a difficult thing. Self-preservation is when I prioritize my own well-being. Self-preservation is when I prioritize my own well-being, my safety, my comfort, my provision, my plans, my life, over the leading of the Spirit and over the commands of Scripture. Self-preservation is when I prioritize my own well-being, my comfort, my safety, my provision, my own life, over the leading of the Spirit and the commands of, the script, commands of Scripture. Decide that we will not be like this. And we will never let our comfort, our provision, our plans, our well-being, our safety, our lives, will never be prioritized over the leading of the Spirit or the command of Scripture. That, it's an, that it won't be a tussle, it won't be a struggle. It'll be our default mode. It can be done. Self-preservation seeks to predict the most favorable outcome. Self-preservation seeks to predict the most favorable outcome. The one that keeps me safest, most comfortable, where I just do what will not bring me hardship or pain. Doesn't that describe churchianity? Self-preservation is our way of predicting the most favorable outcome for ourselves. The one that keeps me safest, the one that keeps me most comfortable, the one that allows me to do things that will cost me least hardship and least pain. Self-preservation allows me to justify that Jesus would never ask me to lose my job, Jesus would never ask me to lo lose, risk my life, Jesus would never ask me to miss a meal, Jesus would never ask me to go across the oceans. That's the job of missionaries. That's self-preservation. It's deadly to our faith. It affects our witness. It is absolutely fleshly. It's deadly to our faith. It affects our witness. It's absolutely fleshly. I'll stop with that. Any questions? Okay, the last bit, yeah. Um, it's, it's most deadly to our faith. Self-preservation and faith cannot go hand in hand because all faith requires risk. Self-preservation 
screams against risk. It's absolutely fleshly because it makes self the center and preserving self at the very core of things. It leads to zero fruitfulness because Jesus said it's impossible for you to preserve your life. Uh, uh, Preserve your life and be fruitful. The secret to fruitfulness is sacrifice. Self-preservation is a diametric opposite of sacrifice. And thirdly, it's, it, it just kills your witness. Because there's nothing that Jesus has in common with me when I'm in self-preservation mode. Nothing. Everything about God is non-self-preservation. So it's just absolutely detrimental to my witness. Guys, these are conditions of the mind. What happens to us Christians when we hear messages like this is, what's going to be asked of me next? What's God going to ask me? What's, what's the church going to ask me? Nothing! Once we change here, Miguel and Danny don't sit at the table with their three kids and saying, as we eat, what are our kids going to take from our plate? Oh my God, that's my favorite sausage. Is he going to take it from my plate? They don't think like that. Oh my God, I earned money this week. Is he going to ask me for shoes? What if he asked me for shoes? Parents don't panic like that. They only panic after you, they become teenagers. But when they're kids, there's no such panic that, oh my, it's the same. Why? Because a parent has a mentality of, I will die for this child. And when we begin to think like this, you are never afraid of what God will ask. You begin to wonder why he hasn't asked for three days. Sade, I have a straight word for you, man. I cannot avoid it. You were sent here to rise up to who you are supposed to be. Engage or disengage. Do not stay in between. You cannot afford lukewarmness. This is your time. This is your time. You're like a rocket ship with boosters fitted full of fuel. You can scale heights that very few here can. Engage or disengage. This is your time. Lukewarmness, you cannot afford because this opportunity, this window will only open three or four years down the road. Jacob, why couldn't you say it to him privately? Wouldn't it have been much better to say it to him privately? No, I want us to hear because you will see what will happen to this guy. You didn't come here because of Tuni and Anile. You didn't come here because of what's his name either. Um, um, Remy, Remy, you didn't come here because of them. You didn't come here because Ottawa winters are colder. <laughs> so that would be a good reason. <sighs> Show them, man. Show them. Or else, disengage and find a place where you can engage. Yeah. Amazing how God will keep you on a short leash throughout your life. I feel bad for you and feel good for you. Okay. I said, let's end. Whose are you? 
Yeah, don't say God, eh? Because we've got another place to go to. Whose are you? Not mine. I am not mine. You are not your own. Whose are you? You are Christ's. I am Christ's. Whose are you, Jacob? I am Christ's and I am yours. I'm yours, Sadi. Use me. Take what you want. Whose are you? You're the Holy Spirit. His temple. His favorite resting place. His trophy to show God off. Who are you? You're a servant. Absolutely dependent on your master. You love serving your master. You don't do it for rewards. You're permanently subjected to your master. You fight to serve your master's guests even when they're not deserving. What is your body for? This is a body that is meant for the glory of God. Let it be done to me according to your will, Mary said around this time, many, many years ago. Let it be done to me according to your will. Here is my body for your glory. What do I have to undo so that God can be whatever he wants to be? I'll continuously chip away at my independence. Because independence and servanthood are incompatible. There are no independent servants. Hey, there are no Ubers in the kingdom. Huh? There's no Uber service in the kingdom. The difference between taxi service and Uber is Uber can decide whether he wants to pick you up or not. Taxis can't. There's a rule that at the airport, if a taxi wants to drop you from the airport to the Tim Hortons around the bend, they have to take you. Uber can choose not to. Independence and servanthood do not go together. I'm going to chip away at independence. I'm going to really try very hard to not be someone who engages in self-preservation. And then finally I'm going to try very hard not to be someone who walks in orphanhood. I'm going to recognize and abandon myself to the Father, but that aside, I'm not going to be suspicious of you and not engage with you, always holding myself back, always not sure of whether you will, you are interested in me, not interested in me. Hey, it is impossible to be relational without getting hurt, eh? Impossible. Yeah. I guarantee you I will hurt you and you will hurt me. I guarantee you, you will not hurt me deliberately. Imagine the confidence I'm saying this with. As I look around this place, there's not a person who will hurt me deliberately. And so therefore, if you hurt me, big deal. Give me two days and I'll forgive you.
two days max, huh? Usually. <laughs> yeah. So, abandon orphanhood, eh? Orphanhood can hide itself behind activity, like the elder brother did. A lot of activity, a lot of this and a lot of that. But inside, in here, this is, this is where everything's happening, man. Change here. We become like this. God's glory flows uninterrupted. 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 Father, we always run out of time. There's so much more to say about you. We've got to go. So... Do what you always do, Holy Spirit. Take these words and begin to please use them to change us. Please use them to change our hearts, change our minds. You're about to do something across the globe, across the earth. It's just, every time I think of that, I think to myself, really? Through us, you're going to ignite this across the earth? And that's why you're putting such a demand on us, saying, hey, become this. I've chosen you for the reasons I've already given you, but now become this so that I can flow uninterrupted, so we don't have to have stops and starts, so that I can begin what I want to, and that it can spread. And that's why you're placing this demand on me, demand on us. Bring it on, oh God, please. Do, do whatever you need to do. chisel away, shape us, every one of us, no one left behind. Some of these things I've said have gone and kind of pierced people in this room. That's okay. That's exactly what you wanted to do. You hurt us with your words, oh God. But you hurt us to remove things and to put things in order. In my mother's womb, from my mother's womb, You have chosen me, and love has called my name. I've been born again into your family. Your blood flows through my veins. One more time. From my mother's womb, you have chosen me. Love has called my name. I've been born again into your family. Your blood flows through my veins. I'm no longer a slave to fear, but I am a slave to God. Yikes. Doesn't sound good, eh? Let's just try that. I'm no longer a slave to fear, but I am a slave to God. I'm no longer a slave to fear, but I am a slave to God. That doesn't sound nice, but it is the truth. Yeah? If you need prayer, feel free to come up. Otherwise, hang hang around and leave around too. Come back, guys. Happy times await you two weeks from now. Yeah.